0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Joyce Matthews, a facilitator, trainer, and writer from Scotland. Joyce works with leaders across the world, developing their skills, confidence, and competence in andragogy, that is, teaching and leading adults. In our conversation we explore how Joyce supports participants to find their own why as they create their own route through their educational programs correlating with their own mindset values and beliefs. Along with discussion on pedagogy and andragogy Joyce offers insights into the mysteries of hootagogy that is self-directed learning when the learner becomes their own teacher. We also chat about sage on the stage and guide from the side teaching approaches and shallow, deep and quadruple loop learning. Joyce shares a range of other facilitation strategies, including the use of social media such as Twitter, and achieving sustainable change when training is pitched at the more profound level of learner identity. Here's my conversation with Joyce Matthews. Thanks very much for um, meeting with me, Joyce. It's nice to be speaking speaking with you. So I know a little bit about you from your social media, but um, I thought we could just start off finding out a bit more about... Um, some of your background.
1: Certainly, yeah. Um, So a PE teacher to trade. I trained in Scotland, oh gosh, uh, graduating 34 years ago. It seems like a lifetime ago. Um, And in Scotland at those times, we did a very specialist PE degree. So it was a Bachelor of Education Honours and it was four years of pure PE. So we did a PE teaching practice every single year and we're qualified to teach PE from five to 18. So we're not primary specialists, we're not secondary specialists, we're physical education teaching specialists. So um, the reason I mentioned that and put emphasis on that is because I think it stood me in great stead for everything that came next. So the year I graduated in Scotland, 1987, our principal stood up in front of the college and said it it was all girls. Well done girls, Um, you've completed your four years there's not a single PE teaching job in Scotland, off you go. So no no jobs in Scotland. There was only 42 of us in my year, so we all scattered to the four corners of the earth. So some went to Hong Kong, some went to Saudi Arabia, people went all over. I went to England and started teaching there. So um, taught in a, a kind of rural country school to start with and then moved to a different area, so started in Humberside, then moved to Norfolk, which is uh, southern England. Um, it's a kind of bump at the side. Um, taught in a, a market town there, um, secondary, head of department. Moved to a different school. And I moved to a school which was right on the coast. It was near Great Yarmouth, which is a kind of holiday town with all sorts of problems, mostly, mostly drugs, really, and a wee bit of crime. And... Uh, I felt I wasn't teaching at all, I was more like a prison officer, I was locking doors, I was putting equipment away before children could steal it Um, and it really kind of broke my spirit and I realised how much I wanted to teach. So the next school that I moved to was a private girls boarding school, 5-18 to and it was incredible. It was just teaching heaven because I could do anything I wanted to do. I could try out any method of teaching and whatever you said to the girls, you know, we're going to do this today and it's a little bit different and we're going to try Style C and I'll give you these cards to learn how to do a cartwheel. They just did it. They lapped it all up. So I absolutely loved that. Uh, So 12 and a half years teaching in Norfolk, I thought, um, I was ready for a change, but I realised that it wasn't going to happen at that school because it was so sort of closed in. It was it was dead man's shoes. You would never get, well, there was nowhere for me to go. I was head of department. Um, I didn't want to be a deputy head. I didn't want to be a head teacher, a school principal. That was never my plan. I loved what? teaching Why not? too much.
0: Why not? I, Why didn't?
1: I didn't want to go into an office. I wanted to be teaching. Teaching was my skill set. Um, and I wanted to keep teaching so at that point my husband was a police officer and he transferred forces to Newcastle upon Tyne, the north of England and the job that came up for me which I subsequently got was advisory teacher for PE so I was advising teachers in all the schools in Newcastle so 81 schools, um, lots and lots of teachers, primary, secondary, middle schools it had a real mix up of a system and what what did you
0: what did you advise them
1: so I put on training courses um I went into schools and did demonstration lessons and the most common topic that they asked me for was dance and gymnastics and within the gymnastics it tended to be we want to know how to use equipment can you show us how to get the equipment out and can you then show us how to use it and do development practices on it and all sorts of things like that and I found that most of the primary schools that went into the gym equipment was covered in dust because nobody ever got out the boxes or the pommel horses or the beams or anything like that because primary teachers were scared to you know they they thought that wasn't their skill set um so I did lots of demo lessons lots of training courses lots of coaching lots of going in and giving advice and looking at plans and curriculums and all the rest of it um and I realized after a while it wasn't working the same teachers were coming back on the same courses year after year after year.
0: Okay. what? So what was happening then? Like, well,
1: I was trying to figure happening. this. Yeah, exactly. What, what was happening? What was not happening? So I tried to figure this out. Either I was turning them into workshop junkies and they were addicted to these courses because I also gave out lots and lots of resources you know, come along to a dance course. I'll give you lesson plans. I'll give you a music CD. Um, and I think it was really the the dance thing. I went back to a school after about three years and one of the teachers said to me, oh, I'm still using that Kylie Minogue dance track you gave me in that dance. And I thought, well, that's not the plan. You don't, Repeat what I've done year after year after year. You don't Car- keep doing this. Carly same is thing.
0: timeless, though. She has
1: a timeless. Time however, <laughs> however, there's kids growing up that know the more up to date stuff. So I, I realized then that actually what I'm doing is not empowering you to create your own resources, your own develop your own skills. I was actually trying to turn them into me, rather into really confident and competent versions of themselves. And they were never going to be me because I was a PE specialist with four years honours degree and all these years of experience. They were never going to be me. So it, it was at that point that the penny dropped that traditional teacher kind of training where the stage the stage stands up with all their knowledge and expertise and solutions to their problems. It doesn't really work. Um in fact, in some cases, it actually disempowers because I'd go in and do a demo lesson and they'd see me doing all these things and go, oh, isn't she amazing? And then the minute I left, they'd say, oh, I can't do that. I'm never going to do that because I can't be Joyce. So it was at that point I realized I needed to find a different approach. And the National College of School Leadership in England had just started up and was running and was actually doing a lot of work with Quelly in Australia. Um, with what
0: in and- Australia? Sorry.
1: And Quelly, the Queensland Leadership Institute.
0: Okay, I'm not familiar with that that organisation.
1: Yeah, we're talking about 10, 15, Hmm. 16 years ago now. Um, And so I got an invite down to the National College. Somebody said to me, "You'd, you'd be great as a facilitator. And I said, I don't even know what facilitation is. So I went for the interview and passed it. And they said, right, we're going to train you as a facilitator and assess you and quality assure you and all the rest of it. And it was the most life-changing training I've ever had in my life. Um, obviously, wow. life-changing. Yeah. Um, what was, the,
0: what it, was it about? the what, what did you experience there during that?
1: So it was the very fact that there wasn't a sage in the stage saying, this is how you do it. This is what it is. There was a guide from the side who guided me through, who knew all the processes and helped me to come to my own solutions be more of me and actually use what i had to be better at doing what i Mm -hmm. was doing
0: now just um i just want to just pause just for a second um for those people like i know exactly what sage on the stage and guide on the side but and most teachers would know that as well because that's kind of in our everyday banter but for mm -hmm. those those kind of people that are listening that don't aren't familiar, could can you just kind of expand? What is what are those two approaches? I mean they yes. kind of it seems yeah. straightforward, but
1: uh, so as a teacher, I was used to the stage on the stage. I was used to going to conferences and workshops where an experienced teacher or an advisor or a professor or an academic would turn up and stand on a stage, literally stand in front of a group who were in a kind of theatre-style formation, they would give us all their expertise and we would sit and listen. And, oh, wow, and, oh, isn't that amazing? Oh, you're fantastic. That Oh, silver bullet, great, thank you very much. And we'd be motivated and enthusiastic and go out all hyped up, but not have the skills or the techniques to actually do anything or change anything. So we were great listeners. We were great passive learners. We were great at soaking all this up and knowing what other people had done but we never left with any skills.
0: Mm. Whereas, so what about the other, the alternative the whereas?
1: So the guide from the side actually is not that person on the stage. So right from the start, the the setup is different. So there isn't that person at the front telling you what to do. Um And the room setup even would be different. So, the room setup would be kind of cabaret style. You'd be sitting in tables with people. They would pose questions or give you activities to do and, and say, you know, off you go, get on with that. And then come back and let's look at what you've all got. And it would be great talking. With other teachers, but well, how would you do that? Well, I'd do that. Well, why would you do it that way? Well, because I found with my kids in my school. All right, so that would work for you. Well, this actually might work for me. Okay, so can we produce something together that might work for everybody? And so there was no right and no wrong. There was no expert saying that's not the way to do it this is the way I would do it and there was somebody saying yeah that's great let's clarify your thinking let's make that better and let's actually give you something tangible to go away with that will work in your situation for you with your pupils or your staff or your teachers and that you actually came out with something useful that you'd produced and created and so it was an increase in confidence it made me hugely confident and Competent, I had skills to do things, I could talk to people, I could negotiate, I could communicate, I wasn't getting into trouble anymore for being a kind of passive aggressive teacher. <laughs> so, yeah, hugely different, hugely different. So, uh, yeah, facilitation really did change my life, and from training as a facilitator at the National College, they took me on as associate facilitator. And then they asked me to do international work. And that's when I realised that's where my heart really was, working abroad with teachers all over the world. And it really honed my skills. And so when I said to you earlier on that I didn't want to be a principal or a deputy principal because I love the teaching thing. So for me, facilitation is the far end of the teaching spectrum. So it's teaching without teaching. And I always wanted to push the boundaries in teaching. So that's what it is.
0: And so at this point, you've kind of not so much abandoned PE. It's kind of you have kind of doing other stuff beyond PE by the sounds of it.
1: Yes, that's right. The National College of School Leadership, it was all leadership programs I was delivering, um, delivering words wrong, not delivering. I was facilitating leadership <laughs> programs. It's the old habits, old habits. Yep, yep. So I wasn't that postman, <laughs> yeah. So it was leadership programs. Um, what sort and- of
0: subjects, like I know that there's a diversity, but what sort of subjects did those people go on to facilitate? Or you know, like kind of, I guess, a broad range, or
1: um, so started- they come from. What, the leaders or the facilitators that well, I was working with?
0: Ev- everyone, I suppose, in that sort of setup.
1: Okay, so the facilitators that I was working with at the National College were all ex teachers. Um, a lot of us were associates, so we, were, we maybe were doing it part time while we were working. And then people would leave their full time jobs and become full time facilitators because it is a profession and not just in teaching. Um, and that's why I do get a little bit upset when people call themselves facilitators and there may be teachers doing a little bit of facilitation. Facilitators are professional facilitators. It's a full-time job. We earn our salary that way. We don't earn it doing teaching and then maybe leading a meeting. It's a full-time job. Um, So the people at the programs we were leading were maybe things like middle leadership, into headship, excellence in headship. It was all a pathway to leadership in schools. And all over the world, you know, in in China, it was the same kind of thing. It was principal programs. Um, And so what I found doing these programs is I tended to keep a track of the, the, the roles of the teachers that came on these. And what I found was that everybody that came on a facilitated programme subsequently got promoted or moved into a different role. So I couldn't say that we, as a direct result of that programme their confidence and competence improved, but there was a pretty strong correlation. The biggest thing I noticed about facilitation was that the skills that we were teaching the facilitators were actually the skills of leadership. So that was the best thing for me. A lot of the courses that are uh, for leadership are all about the knowledge and the concepts and the theories and the models. The skills of a facilitator are actually the skills of all these theories, models and research and evidence. The skills of a facilitator are the skills of a leader.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, what's something that you would do typically? Like, uh, what sort of things do you work on as a as a facilitator?
1: The big thing that I work on now is I've realised that I have to make my work sustainable because I can't keep going into schools or flying to China or Brunei or Canada or all over the place. So rather than me going out and facilitating leadership programs, I now only train facilitators. So this makes the process sustainable. So I will come into schools or local authorities and train facilitators to design and facilitate their own programs so it makes it a self-sustaining process and it makes me redundant so if I'm doing my job properly I'm totally redundant and I don't have to go back and that's another measure of have I done my job properly yeah I'm redundant I don't need to go back they're designing their own programs that's great yeah so that that's the big thing that I do now so I've really honed it down to one product can I train facilitators in this area and make them self-sufficient
0: so, where, how do you how does one approach training facilitators? <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> so it's a it's a, so this is where the PE skills come in. It's an immersion program. So if I was teaching somebody to swim it's no good doing one lesson every two weeks for six weeks or a year or whatever. That doesn't work. So I do a three day immersion program where literally I'm kind of throwing them in the deep end of the pool and they live, eat and breathe facilitation because it also works if it's residential. So the residential ones tend to work slightly better than three days just coming along. Um, So it's a three day program where I introduce them to the concepts of andragogy. I introduce them to the skills of facilitation and all the way through it they are learning to design and facilitate so it's what I call quadruple loop learning so they get to learn the knowledge they have a bit of the understanding they get to learn the skills and they also apply it constantly as they go along with reference to their own context so for designing something we'll be doing it with reference to what would be useful for you to design right now and take back to your school. So what staff meeting are you leading next week? What staff training are you hoping to lead next week or next month? Let's design this and let's all look at it together or let's design for each other. We quite often give each other tasks. So I've, I've got this topic I need to design. Okay, I'm going to give that to that group. I'm going to give it to the, the maths teachers um, training, to the music teachers and see what they come up with How and vice versa.
0: How might that work?
1: <laughs> because facilitators of andragogy are process experts. So you don't need to know the content. You need to design a good process. So it actually works better if you're not invested in it, if you haven't got skin in the game, um, because you're, you can sit back and you're not tempted to be that sage in the stage. Oh, well, but I know this and I want to get this in. That doesn't matter what you know. It's about the processes that you're able to guide the participants through.
0: Now, um, that word andragogy, is that a word we need to be scared of?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. It's one of my favourite words. <laughs> um, every teacher knows pedagogy because, you know, you said in one of your tweets recently, it's it's the art of teaching. And it is. And if you look at the translation, the direct translation from Greek, peda, child, agogos to lead so it's about leading children so andragogy andra man agogos lead leading men so the dictionary definition from andragogy is adult learning and i like to supplement it with the translation it's the skills of leading adults which is slightly different from leading children
0: you touched on some of the um elements of what I would think, oh, that sounds like it's uh, definitely more suitable for uh, when you're teaching or training adults. But what what how is andragogy different to pedagogy?
1: I think the main difference is the mindset, the values and the beliefs, because I, I believe that teachers have these process skills. And when we do the training, we often say, well, well what activity would you use in a classroom to to get, extrapolate that information from the children so they know the processes. So the mindset, the values, and the beliefs. If you think of the film Matilda, do you know mm-hmm. that classic? Yeah. said
0: the little and, girl, a, um, she's like got a mean teacher. That, that,
1: that's right. Uh, Miss, okay. Miss Crunchpole. And she's got a lovely teacher. And she's got Miss a lovely honey. teacher
0: too, yes. Oh, uh-huh, yes. Miss Honey.
1: And she's got a mean dad who says at one point, I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm big, you're small, I'm right, you're wrong. Wow. So that's the way I look at pedagogy. In a way, I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm big, you're small. Because the mindset is, I know more than you. And I'm going to tell you what I know because I can, because I'm bigger than you. And I'm in charge of this class. Whereas andragogy, the I'm right, you're wrong. There's, there's no right. It, there's just a way of finding your right. So there's no wrong. There's no right. There's just a, a, a route through for you. I'm big, you're small. No, we're equal because we're adults, and I'm going to treat you like an adult. Um, I'm smart, you're dumb. We all have different things to bring into this room. You've different skills, knowledge, and understandings and experiences. There's nobody in this room smarter than anybody else because we all bring something completely different. So it's kind of the opposite of that mean dad in Matilda. Hmm.
0: So what? Yeah, I liked that aspect where you're asking them to bring their experiences to the the room or the the session and then yeah. you kind of incorporate that somehow into the activities or whatever um and then what happens like what what do you what do you do with with these people when they're the you know in their development
1: uh, so they're then let loose to practice it's learning a skill it's learning tennis swimming whatever so I give them an introduction to the skills, the theories, the models behind it. They've got the tools to go out and they need to practice. And like any skill, whether it's golf or whatever, you need a wee bit of coaching every now and again. You need to come back and check in your techniques. So I would provide support for a while Um, and one of the projects I worked in in Scotland I worked with the facilitators so I co-facilitated with them for several months until I got to the point where I said you know what you you actually don't need me and this is where I'm a wee bit like Nanny McPhee when you don't need me I'll disappear Um, and they often don't realise it that they don't need me and I'll I'll say, you know, it's time for me to go. You're on your own. You don't need me anymore. Oh, no, no, we're not ready. But actually you are. And at some point you have to stand on your own. So that's when I back out and they realise, yeah, they've got all the skills they need. And it's up to them now to keep developing their professional facilitation skills and whether they move off from teaching into that full time Or just keep using it and going to networks where they share practice or learning different techniques. Um, There's a load of skills and networks and courses out there for facilitators. And that's the kind of things that I tweet. Here's a different technique. Here's a different tool. Here's a program you could go on. Um, So there's so much you can do. I've been doing it over 10 years now. Never stop learning. Loads of courses to go on all the time.
0: Mm. Uh, one of the things I was wondering a few minutes back, is there a diversity of, um, I guess, a diversity within the typical group in terms of their sort almost like willingness or what they've what they know already or, you know, and then how do you sort of work with that?
1: Yeah, there, there's always a diversity. And the one thing that I'm very lucky about is that I always get the right people in my course for some reason or other. You. Don't come on my course if you've been forced um, because it is uncomfortable learning and the first stage in deep learning is conscious incompetence and it's that point where people realise I don't know about this and actually I'm really awful at it and that was the point I got to when I was training teachers and realised that the courses weren't working and actually I was really poor. I was really bad at training because I was just doing what I would do in the classroom. So... Um yeah, I do get people who are willing to confront that and say, well, I I didn't know and it is uncomfortable and I'm going to work through that uncomfortableness. And also the way it's designed allows them their own route through. So they set up, you know, we often talk about find your why. And at the start of a lot of teacher training courses, the sage on the stage will say, right, this is why we're here today. That's not about finding your individual why. So one of the very first techniques I teach them is how to find your own why. And I don't need to know that why. And that why is the guide for you for the rest of the three days and probably the whole of your facilitation career. Um, and I give them an example of, you know, if I was doing this in China and we had all the whys on the board and they are written in Chinese, I couldn't read that. And I don't need to, and it doesn't matter to me because it's all about the processes. I then take you through, and your why will guide you. So it's differentiated within design and within outcome. Every single task and activity is related to you. Mm. Um,
0: you mentioned um, a while back deep learning. What's what's that?
1: Uh-huh. Um so. A model I introduced them to very early is John West Burnham shallow deep profound learning um, a lot of the learning we do in teacher training is shallow um, it's external motivation it's I'm gonna tell you um, it's memorization that kind of thing if we go deeper <laughs>
0: if my little dog's making it. Noise,
1: sorry. <laughs> he's bored already oh my goodness i need to shut up and this is when a facilitator knows they should not be talking they should just be asking lots of good questions instead <laughs> <laughs> um if you go deeper you know the the motivation has changed and if you go right down to profound learning and which is almost hutagogy um it's where you're You set up your own motivation, you become your own teacher, you learn from yourself. There's no external exams or hoops to jump through or anything like that. And that's the quadruple, it's triple loop into quadruple loop learning. Single loop learning is just the shallow stuff that we do to get People to say, oh yeah, I've done three years uh, teacher professional development. Put that in my certificate, or oh, for yep. children, yeah, I need to sit this exam, so I'll learn this information,
0: like a tick a so, box type thing.
1: Yeah, knowledge transfer. That's just very very shallow. And actually, is that learning? Uh, so one of the things we were, it was drilled into us at PE college, that learning is a change in behaviour. And for me, that's profound learning. If it's just stuff, you know, in your head, well, you can do that by email or reading a book or, you know, one of these reading groups. Is it really learning?
0: Mm. Now, you mentioned another word back there. And I want to just find out more about that. Hutagogy.
1: Hutagogy. When the learner becomes their own teacher. So that's so if you look at a spectrum of teaching, if you take it as a spectrum, and this is another thing I introduced the facilitators to. Muska Moston's teaching spectrum one end you've got pedagogy at the far end you've got hutagogy and in between is kind of andragogy um yeah so hutagogy is self-directed learning anytime it's like martini anytime anyplace anywhere
0: what does that that sounded like a good ending but I didn't know what (laughs) what what it means (laughs)
1: Maybe you're too young. The martini advert that we used to have in the UK from years ago and there would be a lady with a, a fancy cocktail glass and saying, oh, martini, any time, any place, anywhere. Ah. You can drink it any time, any place, anywhere. So to me, that's pedagogy. You. you get your learning any time, any place, anywhere.
0: Well, life is learning, I guess. That kind of, it's everywhere.
1: Well, if you use it as learning, lots of people make the same mistakes again and again and again. Mm. Yeah, and it's about that kind of metacognition, isn't it? Stepping back and saying, "Well, actually, what's the opportunity in this, and what have I learned from this, and what will I change? What will I do differently? Um, How has this developed me?" So that's really more around going, "Oh, you know, yeah, well, that that was a good experience, that was fun, or uh, oh, that really enjoyed that." And so what? So what? What are you going to do differently because of that?
0: Yeah, they're not sort of adding, they're not building in reflection or something like that. Exactly
1: yeah and that's the levels of learning so you know if you go deeper and actually well what is in that that that's when it becomes photogodry when you go right down below surface level
0: you're listening to perspectives in parryville So how are, are people, you know, how do they how do they go with all of that? Are they sort of, you know, do people, it's too much for them or most people are kind of getting the spirit
1: of it? Um, sometimes it can be too much for some people. They're not ready for it yet. So, for example, I do an online introduction to the skills of facilitation. And I've been using Twitter as a platform for that. We Zoom at the start and we Zoom at the end and we have a two-week asynchronous program on Twitter. And for some people that is too much. So the reason I use Twitter is because facilitators have to be able to stand up in front of groups, sometimes small, sometimes large. And it's about putting yourself out there and asking really good questions. And a lot of people, I find Twitter is a good platform for that because you are putting yourself out there and you are asking questions and sometimes that can be too much for people so there will be a drop off and um, because they're not ready for it yet. So not everybody is facilitation material yet. And it, it's it's sometimes it's about letting go of that ego and just mm-hmm. being able to trust that actually if I, I listen deeply exactly what you're doing and what i hear and pick up on and ask a question and go with it that's okay i don't need to know everything i don't need to have the answers to every question and i think sometimes in teaching we're led to believe that we have to be the font of all knowledge and it's the opposite facilitation is the opposite
0: yeah that's right especially in our current era we're just awash with sources of information and
1: yeah yeah Uh uh-huh and sometimes you know reading all these i'm part of the edu reading group <laughs> and there's what's a that? lot of it. what's uh, so, reading group <laughs> oh, oh this is a plug for the australian <laughs> reading group it's on twitter have a wee look hashtag edgy reading um where we're we're set uh, an academic reading each month which i have to admit I find really hard. I do not enjoy academic reading. It's not exactly what I would call a page turner, and quite no. often <laughs> I, I struggle. Look, <laughs> I struggle to uh, myself. However, I really <laughs> uh, I look, I quite often look and I see fourteen pages and I almost want to turn off. Then, anyway, um, I, I've lost my track. I can't even think what I was talking about there. Oh, yeah, academic reading. So, as teachers, I think sometimes we have too many of other people's thoughts in our heads because we're told read this, read that, here's the latest book, everybody's writing a book, read this, read that and actually we we don't know our own thoughts because our head is full of everybody's not to read anything. And on my courses when people say what's the homework I say the homework is reading deprivation. Nothing. I don't want you to read anything. I want you to be alone with your own thoughts and see what swirls around in there and listen to your own voice.
0: And then yeah. what do you oh, i guess how do you how what do you what do you do to encourage them or support them or you know do you sort of uh, I yeah like i guess for those that uh it's not comfortable for do you step in or what do you do
1: um so as facilitators we have i was i was looking around for my sheet i have so many sheets on my desk we have our facilitator competency network with the competencies of a facilitator. And one of those competencies is something called non-possessive warmth. Wow.
0: Well, yeah. And that that's
1: that, uh-huh, That's not about pulling the quilt off your husband when he's hogging out at night. Um, non-possessive warmth means allowing people to take ownership of their own learning but maintaining a warmth and support, but also neutrality. So if I give you an example of this, um, I can remember being in a a workshop as a teacher and there was a group of us struggling with a problem and the sage on the stage came over to our table, um, immediately interjected, didn't even ask permission if she could join in or interrupt our conversation. What are you doing? Right, okay, so this is what I do. And she was like a tornado, interjected, gave us her solution and disappeared off. Now, that's the opposite of non-possessive warmth. So you're right, I will support, but allow them ownership of their learning. And even if it's hard, I have to support them through that because learning is hard. It's not always comfortable. And deep learning is highly uncomfortable. So I quite often use the phrase, everything's exactly the way it's meant to be. Um, And it's a great facilitator phrase, okay, so everything is exactly the way it's meant to be and and this is happening for an opportunity, so what could the opportunity be out of this? So, as you say, it's a lot of reflection and deep reflection. Um, And whether that's about journaling, I teach them techniques for free writing and and things like that. Um, Yeah, it's giving them different tools and techniques to work their way through that deep, uncomfortable reflection.
0: And and so those learners, uh, are they, do you call them participants or learners? Or
1: um, So I flip between learners, participants, and I was on a workshop this week with other facilitators and they've started to call them contributors. Oh, I because, like that. Yeah, because we're all learning. And, and that's the other thing I love about being a facilitator. I get to learn every single time. So I'm paid to learn. It's a great job. Mm. So, yeah, contributors participants yeah.
0: So those contributors or uh, what, uh, the ones that are sort of getting the swing of it early on what are they experiencing when they kind of go through this process?
1: Uh, light bulb moments and we talk about that early on as well about how adults have their light bulb moments that eureka moment at different points and the, 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 the important thing that adults learn at different rates so though you might have got that now and go oh i've got that i can do that it might not come to the person sitting next to to next week next month next year three years five years so we will all learn at different rates and if you don't get it now it's okay it's in there your subconscious is working on it so just let the boys in the back room do their stuff Um, And we often don't because we're so pressurised to keep up with everybody and evidence-led, evidence-informed, we we need to do this and everybody else is doing this. But actually it's okay just to slow down and learn at your own rate. So I've just been looking, I obviously keep a whole load of models beside me because this is where I sit to design. And one of the models I introduced them to quite early on is something called DILT's Neurological Levels of Change. And, okay, and is that I can see that. You yes, that? I can see that. And this is... This but our viewers can't. A, <laughs> no, it, so I'm going to talk through it a little bit because this comes as a big light bulb moment for a lot of people. And I introduced it quite early on. Um, change happens at different levels. And sustainable change happens at a very high level, which is identity level. So for a facilitator, a teacher moving from a facilitator, it's about changing identity. And we we talk about when you come in this room, take off your hat, take off whatever garb you are as a teacher, and let's try on this coat of being a facilitator, because when you come out of here, you will be a different person. You will know different things. You'll hear yourself saying different things, using different words, and actually you're not just your, your thinking and your um, your way of designing will change, but your whole identity will change. So the, the very bottom of uh, DILT's neurological levels of change is something called environment. So if you change your environment, it's very low level change. So an example of this is a school I was in in Newcastle. Uh, which had a lot of behaviour management programs, uh, behaviour management problems. Decided to change the problems. They would paint the walls lilac because it was very calming. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an environment change. And guess what? It lasted for about two weeks. Yeah, the children were calm for two weeks, and uh, then they were hanging from the roof. They were wild again because it's change at a low level, so it doesn't really identify the deeper issue and change at higher levels. So the next level of change is behaviour. If you can start to change the behaviours, then that will be longer lasting. The next one is skills and knowledge. So you're you're building it into a competency. So you're not just changing one behaviour, but you're making it a a more profound, more competent change that they'll do something repeatedly. Um, And then we go up to changing values and beliefs and then identity which leads to a higher kind of spirituality and mission and purpose. Now, I use this quite often. Sometimes I put it on the floor of the room. I do a great big one on on wallpaper and sometimes get the teachers to walk through it before they leave the training room. Some people can do it. Some people stop at level. Some people cry because it can be very transformative. Um, And I think that's something that we we sometimes don't realise in teacher training, that a lot of the training we do is at environment level because we we give out lots of resources, we give lots of tips, we give you reading, we give you this. But actually, you're just changing this. You're not changing behaviours or skills or values or belief or even identity. And that's what I was doing when I was training the PE teachers. I was giving them lots of resources, lots of lesson plans, taking out all the equipment, but I didn't change the way they felt about themselves. As teachers of physical education. Okay, so what is the point of this? Why would people bother? Um, I suppose I bothered because I am fascinated with the process of helping people learn. And for me, it was just a natural progression. Okay, I can teach five to eighteen, but how do you go through that process and and keep going up the age groups? And actually, maybe it's all about how do I help myself to learn? Because you know, if you're working through it, it's it's about getting towards that final, I think I've mentioned already, learning without teaching. Um, I don't know where this is going. This is probably not we. <laughs> um, no, it's you, us following. <laughs> yeah, why bother? Because at the end of the day, it's always all about us, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's, it's about who we are and what we do. And... I absolutely love it. I love my job. I'm, I'm missing, because of COVID, I'm missing not doing the face-to-face. What I have been doing is spending a lot of time walking and listening to myself and thinking about what's going around in my head and, and almost too much time. So I also knew, I suppose I've been demonstrating andragogy in COVID because I've watched lots of facilitators say, I'm going to go online, I'm going to do this, I'm going to transfer it. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So I purposefully stayed off until somebody came to me and said, we'd like you to design this. And I said, okay, I can design this. And I've, I've loved that challenge of, can you design as an online program? Could you take your three-day program, face-to-face program, and make it modular so it can be started online? And first of all, I thought, I no, I can't do that because it's skills. How do you teach, you know? How do you teach gymnastics online? That's really hard. So the design process for me has taken me quite a while to figure out how do I do the skills thing online, and I finally got it, and it has taken me months. And I think sometimes that's one of the biggest hurdles for teachers moving into facilitation. The design process is really, really time consuming um it is yeah it's invisible
0: the best part is it's invisible when you've done Uh a really good job and exactly what have you got to show and it's like invisible your your process is invisible generally
1: yeah uh uh-huh and people don't know the design behind it but they sure as hell would know if there wasn't good design behind it because we all have been to bad sessions um and i love that it's like putting a jigsaw together the design um, so I absolutely love that and it's taken me quite a while to, to move my three-day course to modular and I've got it now um, and that's been great. So I'm really looking forward to getting back to training more facilitators and you'll notice I use that word training facilitators because when you're working with skills, there, there is a bit of training and I quite often see them. So what parts am I training and what parts am I facilitating and see if you can identify them when I'm switching in and out.
0: In this episode, I chatted with Joyce Matthews, a facilitator, trainer and writer. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Joyce's website and social media. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.